Hi, welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. Our experts are given just six minutes to present, and this is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. This week's topics include stopping aging, IRS audits, and China. Our first speaker today is Andrew Steele, who made an unusual leap from his PhD in physics at Oxford to working on computational biological problem of aging. Andrew writes about the science for the layman, about the latest medical developments in longevity. Andrew has a new book entitled Ageless, The New Science of Getting Older Without Getting Old, that is now a bestseller. President Biden has asked Congress to double the IRS budget by an additional $87 billion to increase IRS staff and to dramatically increase the number of audits of wealthy Americans. Biden expects to generate an additional $700 billion of tax revenues. Today, we have a panel of two experts who have spent their lives in tax preparation and IRS controversy. Our first speaker on the IRS panel is my friend and my accountant, Phil Ryan, who is a co-founder of Ryan and Jurassic. I've asked Phil to discuss what activities the IRS will find right for audits. Our second speaker on the panel is my friend and my tax lawyer, Tom Durham, who is a former partner at Mayor Brown. Tom will discuss how previous tax changes have already increased tax revenues from wealthy taxpayers and reduced tax shelter opportunities. What happens next then segues to containing Chinese power in Southeast Asia. In previous episodes, we have focused on America's military challenges and the use of the Quad, India, Japan, Australia, and the United States, who work together to confront aggressive Chinese behavior in the South China Sea. Today, we're going to discuss China's relations with its Southeast Asian neighbors and the likelihood of escalation in U.S.-China disputes. Our first panelist is Sebastian Strangio, who is an Australian journalist who has written a fascinating book entitled In the Dragon's Shadow, Southeast Asia in the Chinese Century. That book analyzes Chinese relationships with 10 of its closest neighbors. Sebastian explains how these countries view the opportunities and the risks of getting closer with the Chinese. Our final speaker today is Marco Popic, who is a chief strategist at Clock Tower Group. Marco advises hedge funds how to evaluate geopolitical risk, and his new book is entitled Geopolitical Alpha, an Investment Framework for Predicting the Future. Investors need to evaluate political risk, and Marco will explain which tools to employ to make better predictions. I've asked Marco to uh, specifically detail how to use his methods to evaluate the current disputes between the United States and China. Each month, I discuss the U.S. employment payroll data because it is the single most important economic statistic. The headline monthly change that came out this Friday and the number of employed Americans increased by 559,000, which was good, but less than the economist's forecast by about 100,000 jobs. Teenagers did spectacularly well. A year ago, at the height of the pandemic, teenage unemployment was an unbelievably high 30%, and today it is now less than 10 and falling fast. With reopenings of restaurants and hospitality, there's going to be enormous demand for teenage labor. I want to give you a sense of the scale of the U.S. employment situation. Total employment pre-COVID in the U.S. was 158 million. At the lows in April 2020, employment shrank to just 133 million, or down about 25 million. Today, 152 million people are back to work, so we're up 19 million from the lows, but down 6 million from pre-COVID. Of those 6 million lost jobs, nearly half are just from leisure and hospitality alone. 
In a previous episode of What Happens Next, University of Chicago labor economist Casey Mulligan highlighted that we will get back slowly to normal because we're paying significant unemployment benefits. We have sort of a natural experiment going on as 25 or 50 states have reduced these benefits and all these states have Republican governors. Many of these states are now back to full employment with unemployment rates at around three odd percent. America's big blue states have much higher unemployment rates. Illinois, Pennsylvania, New Jersey have unemployments above seven, and Connecticut, New Jersey, and California have unemployment rates above 8%. I do not know why these states are suffering so badly, but it might relate to tighter lockdowns during COVID or higher unemployment benefits now. But as lockdowns end, kids go back to school, unemployment benefits are reduced, and businesses reopen, then hopefully, New York, Illinois, and California will see employment levels in line with the rest of the country. I would like to expand our audience of what happens next so that more people can enjoy our programming. I'm starting a social media outreach using Twitter. We want to increase user engagement, and we want you to be part of a community of interested listeners. I'm going to go do an experiment today where I include Twitter questions on the show. So please tweet us, and I will do my best to include your comments. Our Twitter username is what happens in six, where six is the number. I repeat that, what happens in six. I am very excited about hearing from you, so please tweet. With that, I would like to introduce our first speaker, Andrew Steele, who is the author of Ageless, the new science of getting older without getting old. Go ahead, Andrew. Every year you're alive, your chance of death increases by 10%. This doesn't start out so bad. I'm in my 30s, and my annual chance of death is something like one in a thousand per year. It's worth thinking about what that actually means. If my odds of death stayed at one in a thousand for the rest of my life, I could expect to live into my thousand and thirties on average. But clearly, that's not what happens. That 10% per year, like morbid compound interest, gradually builds up. And by the time you're 65, your odds of not making 66 are more like 1%. At 80, your risk of death is 1 in 20. And if you're lucky enough to make it into your 90s, your chance of death is a sobering 1 in 6. Life and death are the roll of a dice. The reason for this increase in the chance of death is an increase in the chance of disease. The risk of cancer, heart disease, stroke, dementia, and even the risk of death from coronavirus all rise exponentially with age too. Do the math, and aging is easily the world's largest cause of death and suffering. Of the 150,000 people who die on planet Earth every day, over 100,000 of them die because of aging. As a human, this sounds terrifying. We've all got this exponentially increasing wall of death coming at us at incredible speed. But as a scientist, this is fascinating because we've got this this strange process that means our our chance of death rises so suddenly that around the same age, no matter how old we are, no matter who we are, sorry, It suggests that there may be some underlying process. And if we can understand that process and intervene in it, we could all live much longer, healthier lives. It turns out that this process exists, and some animals have already cracked it. One example is the Galapagos tortoise. The oldest recorded Galapagos tortoise, Harriet, made it to the ripe old age of 175 before she died. However, what's more exciting is that Galapagos tortoises have a risk of death which doesn't rise as they get older. This is known as negligible senescence, the scientific phrase for not aging. And these Galapagos tortoises can, in a very real sense, be said not to age. They don't get more frail with time. 
They even stay reproductively active almost until the end of their lives. Harriet was likely as sprightly at 150 years old as she was at just 50, which is to say not very, she is a tortoise. But her example shows us that aging isn't an iron law of biology, but one we can do something about. So how can we be more tortoise and live longer lives, which most importantly are healthy to the end? Scientists are decoding the aging process. And we now know that some of the biggest factors behind the process are things that we can intervene in. The fundamental cellular and molecular changes that are behind everything from wrinkles and gray hair to frailty, forgetfulness and incontinence, to cancer and dementia. And the idea is that by intervening in these processes, we could delay or even prevent multiple age-related diseases and dysfunctions all at the same time. Thanks to this new understanding, scientists now have dozens of different ways to slow and even reverse the aging process in the lab. From changing their diets to manipulating their genes to giving them drugs, we can turn back time in everything from individual cells to whole animals like mice. Perhaps the most exciting idea is removing a type of aged cell, known as senescent cells, from the bodies of old animals. Scientists have developed a new kind of drug called a senolytic that can kill these senescent cells while leaving other cells in the body intact. Scientists gave these senolytic drugs to 24-month-old mice. Obviously, mice have a shorter lifespan than humans, so that's roughly equivalent to 70 in human years. And it basically made them biologically younger. They lived a few months longer, so maybe a few years in human terms, but they don't stumble on in geriatric ill health. They get less cancer and heart trouble and fewer cataracts. They're less frail and can run further and faster on the little mousy treadmills they're using in experiments. They're more curious, like younger mice, and they even have better fur. These animals just look great. So what this shows us is that senescent cells are a fundamental driver of the aging process, responsible for multiple dysfunctions and diseases that occur with age. Getting rid of them can delay many or even all of the signs of getting older all at once. And most excitingly, these drugs are already in human trials. The first human trial of a semolytic started in 2018, and there are now more than two dozen companies working to get these treatments from the lab into the clinic. At first, these will be treatments for specific diseases, where we know that senescent cells are implicated. But if these drugs prove effective, and most importantly, safe, they could be the first examples of the dream of real anti-aging medicine. A treatment that you could take in your 50s or 60s, hopefully before you get ill, which would pump the problems of old age a little further into the future, allowing us all to live healthier for longer. This idea could be the greatest revolution in medicine since the discovery of antibiotics. Medicines which, like antibiotics, can treat many different bacterial infections, can't just treat but prevent many or even most of the diseases of old age. The first of these exciting treatments could well be with us in the next five or ten years, and with sufficient funding and a bit of luck, real anti-aging medicine could be here soon enough to improve the lives of most people alive today. I think we should make it our mission to cure aging. Even if we don't quite make it as far as a cure, we'll all be able to enjoy some more healthy years. And if we do succeed, we can dramatically reduce the burden of disease right across our aging global population, saving billions of lives and trillions of dollars. For this reason, I think that understanding and treating aging is the single most important quest in contemporary biology. I wrote my book to raise the profile of this field, and I'd like all of you to help. What happens next is up to scientists, doctors, lawmakers, and all of us. Andrew, thank you. That was terrific. Um, needless to say, we're all rooting like you are for a longer life. Um, let's start out with these senescent cells. Um, could you dig a little deeper and explain to us uh, what that even means in a cell? 
uh, how it works and why it's so problematic, and then how you're going to kill these things. These are cells that uh, they are basically ages is the, is the easiest way to think about them. That's a little bit more complicated than that under the biological hood. The idea is they're cells that have perhaps they've divided too many times or they've got damage to their DNA, so the cellular instruction manual inside all of them. And this is something that can obviously happen as we age because as our, our, you know, our tissues are constantly replenishing, so our cells divide to do that. And that means they've divided more times by the time you're older. Or there are all kinds of different processes that damage that DNA, everything from smoking or UV exposure to just the sort of random damage from everyday, uh, you know, just being alive. And so as these processes accumulate with age, we accumulate these senescent cells. And the problem is they don't just sit there not dividing sort of benign elders of the cellular community. They actually pump out this toxic cocktail of molecules, the primary purpose of which is to call over the immune system because these cells aren't needed in our bodies. So the idea is that the immune cells can come and gobble them up and get rid of them. The issue is that this, uh, this cocktail of molecules can actually accelerate aging in a whole load of different ways. It can contribute to this, what's called chronic inflammation, which is a sort of paranoia in the immune system that we all suffer from as we get older. It can drive diseases like cancer, like heart disease and so on. And it, as I say, basically, they just make you get older faster. So by killing these cells, you can give them drugs. And the idea is that these, a, a lot of cells in, this, in, in a state where they've got damaged DNA or where they've divided a lot of times, well, you know, basically commit suicide. It's a cellular process called apoptosis. Um, and actually, that's the way I think that most cells tend to go. But it's just this handful of cells that end up hanging on being senescent. But as it happens, they've actually got a lot of these apoptotic genes, so the genes that are, you know, for, for cell suicide activated inside them. So all the drugs have to do is go in and sort of suppress some of the anti-suicide mechanisms in these senescent cells and sort of push them over the edge. And then they die, leaving all the cells around them hopefully intact, getting rid of that sort of process that accelerates our aging while leaving the rest of the healthy cells in our body to divide and take their place. Um, I wanted to, uh, one of the things you mentioned in the book is that the telomeres uh, can divide a certain amount of time um, and then they stop. Um, and those probably turn into senescent cells, I imagine, as well. To what extent um, is that one of the primary causes? Um, I think you gave an example in the book as to why uh, our hair goes gray uh, related to a telomere, um, the end of it being able to split. Um, do we have enough other cells? Do we have enough stem cells internally to recreate cells if we blow out our, our older cells and get rid of our uh, defective ones? And how can we use the, uh, question. The, the change in the color of the hair as, as an example of this sort of phenomena? Yeah, it's a really fascinating question. There's a lot to unpack there. The first thing is um, when you're asking about root causes, it's very, very challenging in aging to, to lay out actual you know, definite prime movers, as it were, you know, the things that ultimately go on to cause all these other kinds of dysfunction. And that's because um, these processes are often very interrelated. So in the book, I break it down into 10 what are called hallmarks of aging. And these are things that do increase as we get older. They do seem to drive multiple different diseases. But it's often very hard to pin, you know, which exact one is the root cause. And that's a sort of an ongoing process in, in science. Um, telomere shortening is definitely something that drives cellular senescence. The telomeres are these little caps on the end of our DNA, and every time our cells divide, those caps get shorter. So it's sort of a way for cells to keep track of how many times they've divided. And if those telomeres become what's called critically short, then the cell will indeed turn into a senescent cell. So that's, you know, they're clearly very closely related mechanisms. However, we also know that you can go in and uh, you, can, you can activate a gene called telomerase, which will then extend those telomeres. And this is a very important gene, for example, in development. So, you know, when you have a, a new baby, it's vitally important that its telomeres don't get critically short before it's properly developed. 
So when you're developing in the womb, the very earliest of your stem cells activate telomerase and regenerate those telomeres at the start of your life. And we've, we've noticed that telomerase therapy, just like removing senescent cells, seems to be able to slow and reverse aging as well. So it's a real question as to which, you know, which one of those or what combination of those things is going to turn out to be the most effective. In terms of whether we have enough stem cells or other cells to divide and take the place of all the senescent cells that we kill, that's actually very much an open question. And one of the scientists I spoke to while I was uh, writing the book um, said that, you know, what, what, you know if, if we're going to attack these in order, the first thing we do is we've got these drugs on the way that can remove the senescent cells. Maybe we'll give people these drugs, get rid of their senescent cells and improve their aging. What will they then die of? And the answer they thought was stem cell exhaustion. So they will indeed run out of cells. So perhaps the next thing we'll have to do is give those stem cells some extra telomerase or do some stem cell therapy or there's a technique called cellular reprogramming which you can use to rejuvenate stem cells. I don't know which of those it will be, but perhaps that will be the next step. And then the question will be, you know, once you've got rid of your senescent cells and you now have plenty of cells to replace those cells, what's the next thing and the next thing? And that's sort of the slow process by which we're going to chip away at the phenomenon of aging and improve all of our health, all of our health as we get uh, later in life. Um, I want to go into it's a kind of a big picture. Um, our audience are not scientists, and yet we are desperate to improve our health, reduce morbidity, and delay mortality. Um, mm. And you know, each week on what happens next, I try to bring in somebody to talk about various aspects of it. So um, a few weeks ago, we had episodes on nutrition, for example. And we had Dr. David Katz, from, uh, formerly of, who ran the Yale Nutrition Program, talk about how if you ate a proper diet, it would significantly increase, uh, extend life, sometimes by more than decades. Um, diet is something we can work on right now. Um, you know, your other suggestions of where science is going is obviously fantastic, but I imagine it's in combination with good diet and exercise as well. How should we think about diet as part of this arsenal? I think I've been um, I've, I've really been energized to follow basic health advice um, by, by writing this book, and that's for a few different reasons. I've got a chapter of health advice in the book actually, and some of it is surprisingly basic. It's things like you know making sure you get a good balanced diet, eating a variety of different things, trying not to eat too much of that so you can you know maintain a healthy weight, so very approximately a BMI between 18 and a half and 25. That's if you divide your your weight by your height squared, get that number, and you try and keep it in that healthy range. What I found was it's very hard to give highly prescriptive dietary advice. One of the most fascinating results in aging biology is this idea of something called dietary restriction, which is where, and in fact, we've known about this since the 1930s. The first experiments were done in rats. They radically cut back the number of calories they ate while making sure they got uh, adequate nutrition in every other way, so you know, all the relevant vitamins and minerals. And what they found was that those animals lived about half as long again as animals that were eating what they liked. And so there's this fascinating idea that you know, perhaps if we all dramatically cut back on our calories, we too could live longer in good health. Unfortunately, the picture is a bit complicated. It's not entirely clear that that's going to work in humans. However, I think there is, as, as your previous guest said, huge scope, you know, optimizing our diet, making sure you try and get half an hour of regular exercise a day, uh, you know, not smoking, all of these things you know, that your mother could have told you. And um, they can literally you know, add five or 10 years to your life, which is incredible. And the first reason that writing this book has made me much more excited about that is just because you begin to understand that a lot of these things are literally slowing down the aging process. That's not an exaggeration. So, you know, it's not as though you're deferring one particular disease or, uh, you know, something like exercise. You, know, you can really imagine how that improves your heart health, but actually exercise can reduce the chance of many kinds of cancer as well. And it can even ward off dementia and cognitive decline. 
So it's just this, the incredible breadth of these interventions to you know, improve your health in so many different ways. That's the first reason I was really excited, understanding a bit about the biology. It shows you how powerful these things are. And secondly, because these treatments are on the horizon, like I said, you know, senolytic drugs, they're probably five or ten years away for use in actual, uh, you know, to intervene in aging. Um, we've got other drugs that are repurposed existing drugs. There's a diabetes drug called metformin that's currently being tested to see if it can slow down the aging process. These things are going to be available soon. And so if you're alive and healthy enough to take these treatments at the time when they're developed, you could potentially you know, stand to benefit and live a little bit longer. And what that means then is that you live a little bit longer again for scientists to develop more treatments. So there's this real sort of virtuous circle, a positive feedback loop. The longer you keep yourself healthy and alive, the more of these treatments you can benefit from. So that's just two reasons why, you know, understanding a bit about the aging biology, both how this health advice impacts on it and its potential for the future, has just really reinvigorated my passion to try and, you know, try, try and stay healthy, basically. Uh, different tact. Um, one of the experiments that you discussed in the book was um, literally combining two mice, uh, one an older male uh, with the younger female, where the blood supply was shared. And what you noticed was a rejuvenation in the older male uh, mouse. Um, why do you think that that is? And is there lessons to be learned from that experiment that could um, extend human life? I think the first lesson, which will be, uh, you know, which will come as a relief to any younger listeners, is that the uh, the conclusions for humans is not going to be that we need to sew old and young people together to try and benefit the health of the older person. However, what this really illustrates is, um, I, I think the most exciting thing about this is that it demonstrated that the the cells inside an old mouse aren't, some, you know, in some irreversibly decrepit state. One of the experiments they did on the older mouse is they make a very small injury in the mouse's muscle. And they found that an old mouse attached to an old mouse, or an old mouse on its own, heals more slowly than an old mouse attached to a young mouse. And so it's as though that young mouse, by some mechanism that's not, it's hard to put your finger on, is rejuvenating the power of those cells to regenerate. It's improving the healing of the muscles, and it actually improves the brain and the heart and all kinds of different parts of the body. There's clearly something going on. Those early experiments where you sew two mice together, you know, apart from the fact they sound quite Frankensteinian, the other reason that they're, not, um, they're not, not so widely done anymore is because they're sort of a proof of principle. Because it's really, really hard to work out what the effect is in that particular case. Because um, when, when you've got an old mouse sewn for a young mouse, it's not like they're just sharing blood and so perhaps there's some chemistry in the blood that's slowing down the aging. They're also, um, you know, the old mouse is also benefiting from the young mouse's kidneys and liver, which are filtering any toxins out of the blood. It's benefiting from the young mouse's heart and lungs, which are giving it you know, a nice, fresh, oxygenated blood supply. There's even, uh, when I spoke to the scientists who are doing some of these experiments or have done them in the past, they said that because the old mouse is attached to the young mouse, young mice tend to run around a lot more. So the old mouse sort of gets dragged around on this enforced exercise program. And as we were just discussing, you know, exercise is incredibly good for your health in a variety of ways. So what's um, really sort of... These first results came out in about 2005 that really showed this conclusively. It was seemed to be you know, rejuvenating these cells. And since then, scientists have looked at just swapping the blood between the two mice. And now we're trying to get more advanced and understand which factors in the blood might be driving those changes, to you know, identify individual chemicals. Because there have been some uh, experiments that have been done in humans without particularly conclusive results, it has to be said. There are also private companies offering transfusions of young people's blood for uh, inordinate sums of money. Again, there isn't really a huge amount of evidence that that's going to work. The more exciting thing is that we're going to you know, delve down into the molecular nitty-gritty of what's going on here, find the factors that go up in old blood that we want to try and remove, try and find the factors that go down in old blood that we might want to try and you know, add a little bit more of, and then hopefully we can bring the body a bit close to that youthful equilibrium, reinvigorate some of those stem cells, 
uh, hopefully reverse the aging process in that way. In other episodes of What Happens Next, we had that Nobel Prize winner Angus Deaton speak. And what he highlighted was, for the first time in modern history, um, United States um, mortality rates uh, have actually worsened. Um, and I suspect it's because we've been eating more, exercising less, um, and you know we had a downtick. And you know from that, uh, we had another speaker, Dietrich Volrath, an economist at the University of Houston, and he spoke about the fact that um, although we're spending more and more money um, on healthcare, we're not getting much uh, marginal improvements in outcomes. But what you're talking about. Um, is not sort of a linear uh, improvement in aging, but a almost nonlinear acceleration in ability of extending life and reducing morbidity, something totally outside the bounds of uh, what we're looking at. Um, why are you so optimistic? Why haven't these ideas of optimism uh, taken hold in the scientific community? Why are, are you so excited, but uh, the rest of the industry so concerned? I think the excitement around aging biology is just starting to take off, and it's taken an incredibly long time. I looked back over the history of the field when I was writing the book, and it's hard, obviously, to write a narrative about the incredibly complicated interaction of you know, thousands of scientists over many, many generations. But the feeling I really got was that originally aging was seen as this incredibly complicated and actually slightly boring process. Because you know, we know that um, our machines, they wear out, they fall apart, you know, they rust. So it was just sort of seen as this gradual, inevitable process of degradation that wasn't really that interesting to study biologically. And when scientists started to investigate the evolutionary causes of aging, so why is it that animals that are, you know, evolution is survival of the fittest. Why would animals that have evolved grow old? You know, how is it fitness optimizing to degenerate in late life? And basically, the, the sort of short version of those theories suggested it's probably a huge combination of different things. There might be hundreds or thousands of different processes driving aging. And so again, scientists just thought this is irreducibly complex, it's not that exciting. But we got to a point in the early 90s where we could make single gene, in fact, single DNA letter alterations to a nematode worm. And that's this tiny millimeter long organism that's often used as a sort of test bed and experimental subject in labs. And that single genetic change could double its lifespan. And suddenly that was a lot more exciting because you know, previously scientists had thought this is something that's impossibly complicated. There can't possibly be a single gene that you can change that will, um, you know, that will affect the course of aging. And actually we've now got single genes where you can intervene and change a single DNA letter. And you can multiply the lifespan of a worm by a factor of 10. And we can also you know, fairly significantly increase the lifespan of mice by genetic changes as well. And so suddenly this gave scientists a whole new toolkit and they could actually do these experiments in the lab. They weren't impossibly complicated. And having got to that stage, there was a bit more excitement in the field. But the problem was still, you know, there's still a huge issue in biology that a lot of biologists thought it was this impossible problem. And that means it's very hard to get critical mass. Because I think about my own career, you know, I, and I think about the career of the people around me when I worked as a, as a computational biologist. I came in as a physicist. I often knew more than my colleagues did about aging biology. And this isn't because I'm some kind of you know, genius savant. That's absolutely not the case. It's just because I've done a bit of reading about it. And I'd speak to someone who'd got you know, an excellent degree in biochemistry from one of the UK's top universities, and he literally hadn't had a lecture on aging biology. My wife's a doctor, and you know, they talked about aging in her medical school, but they, they, they talk about you know, dealing with older patients. They talk about how to cope with patients who are on lots of different drugs or have difficulties in their social life at home because of their age. They don't talk about 
how we can use drugs and other uh, methods to intervene in the aging process. And I guess it's fair enough for doctors because we haven't got those drugs yet, nothing she can prescribe today. But there might be in five years' time, it's certainly relevant to her career. And I think it's just a vicious cycle because if you don't learn about it as an undergrad, you don't have a lecture on it, you, it's not in your textbooks, you then won't do a PhD in aging biology. And once you've done your PhD in something else, cancer biology or virology, you're going to continue in that path for the rest of your career. So when you're a professor giving a lecture to your own students, you're not going to uh, you know, infuse them with excitement about aging biology either. You're going to tell them all about cancer research or whatever it is you work on. And so the fact that the field is small can be the sort of self-perpetuating cycle. It makes it hard to get a job. It means there are fewer uh, PhDs, there are fewer postdocs, there are fewer professors, and so the cycle perpetuates. So I actually think it's not based in science. My optimism is because we've got, these, as I said, dozens of different ways that we can slow and reverse aging. This is real. There are people doing really amazing work at top flight universities, Pharmaceutical companies are starting to get interested. We're finally seeing billions of pounds of venture capital and private equity you know, come in and try and uh, get biotech companies that are working on this stuff. So I think we're really on the cusp of a revolution. That's why I'm so excited. I think it's just a question of spreading the word. We really have to tell scientists, you know, you, sh you should stop what you're doing and work on this. This is very, very exciting and could change the world. We've got to tell doctors this is a, an emerging field of new medicine. We need you know, policymakers and uh, representatives. I, I'd love people to write to their representatives, write to their senators, give them a call, tell them that this is such an exciting, fascinating field. This is real science. We have to invest in it. Because I think, you know, we've just got to get that ball rolling and we can start to see that incredible nonlinear change you discussed. My last question for you, Andrew, relates to Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, as we get older, uh, we all seem to recognize that we're a little bit slower in uh, word retrieval memories, particularly short-term memories, um, and other ailments of mental decline. Um, the idea of living to 110 but having Alzheimer's doesn't appeal to many people. How is the same science applicable to uh, Alzheimer's and mental delay um, and dementia that we can be optimistic to have not only a long life but a fruitful one? I think this is a really, really important point in general, actually. I think when you talk about uh, treating aging, what a lot of people imagine is that you're going to get to 80, then you're going to, you know, maybe you'll live to 120, but you'll spend your last 40 years in a decrepit state in a nursing home. But that absolutely isn't what's likely to happen. Because the fact is, the reason that you die, and this is going to sound incredibly basic, but the reason that you die is because you get ill. You know, people don't die of old age. It's a sort of myth that you can just pass away in your sleep, you know, age 87, you go to bed basically fine, you just don't wake up the next morning. But actually, normally, it's an extended battle with cancer, it's an extended battle with heart disease, it's a gradual loss of your memories, your personality through something like dementia, until finally one of these diseases becomes severe enough to take your life. And what's really optimistic about aging biology, and actually why I think it might be easier to treat aging than it is to treat something like dementia or treat something like cancer, which obviously we've been struggling to do for decades, is because these fundamental underlying processes are behind all of these different diseases. Although it varies at, you know, to what extent which ones are most major in which diseases or which parts of the body, the fact is that senescent cells are behind, you know, they're partially responsible for everything from cancer to heart disease to cataracts to cognitive decline. All of these different aspects are dealt with by this one more fundamental cause. I'm going to hesitate to say root cause after my answer earlier. But the fact is that because we can address these more fundamental causes, we can not only prevent multiple diseases at once, but also in a way that modern medicine might go in and, you know, it, it, it works in silos. You end up, you know, go, you, you get cancer, you go to your cancer doctor. Your cancer doctor doesn't really care about the health of your heart. He can't give you anything that will improve both your cancer and your heart health. But if we could give you a drug that would slow down or reverse your aging, we could reduce your risk of cancer, we could reduce your risk of heart attack. 
And rather than trying to like pick off these diseases one by one in an aged body that's been ravaged by time, we can potentially slow down the whole process at once. And that means that you know we're going to get less cognitive decline at the same time as we're going to get less heart disease, same time as we're going to get less cancer, at the same time we're going to get less frailty, we're going to be more active in our later years. We'll be able to play with our grandkids and our great-grandkids, we'll be able to get around the house. You know, things like incontinence or uh, impotence that we don't necessarily give a clinical diagnosis, but are nonetheless very embarrassing and inconvenient changes. These are all essentially caused by these same underlying aspects of the aging process. And that's why I'm so excited about treating because this isn't just about you know, extending frail life. This isn't just about treating one disease. It's about essentially making us younger for longer. Andrew, thank you very much. I do encourage listeners to check out Andrew's book, Ageless, The New Science of Getting Older Without Getting Old. It is packed with interesting ideas, um, but it's uh, available for the layman to understand and appreciate this exciting new science. Andrew, thanks again for joining us. All right, we're going to segue completely so to a much. different topic. You're welcome, Andrew. Uh, to a completely different topic, which is the doubling of the IRS budget. What will this new IRS staff and enforcement team do uh, to come after wealthy Americans to get the uh, talked about $700 billion of additional tax revenues? We're going to start today's discussion with Phil Ryan, uh, who is the founder and partner at the accounting firm Ryan and Jaraska. Phil, take us away. Thanks, Larry. I'd like to talk about four areas. The current IRS, the additional funding, IRS audits in general, and future reporting requirements. Some of the numbers that, that I will uh, talk about compare the current IRS with what we had 10 years ago. Uh, in terms of tax returns that in, uh, that in 2019, the IRS processed roughly 154 million individual returns, 2,148,000 corporation returns, 12,249,000 flow-through entity returns. And by flow-through entities, I mean subchapter S corporations, partnerships, and trusts. These entities do not pay tax. The income flow, flows through to the individual shareholders, partners, or beneficiaries. This compares with 10 years ago, where 141 million individual tax returns were filed, 2,031,000 corporations, and 10,930,000 flow-through entities. If we look at the IRS personnel, there's, a, if, if, there's great concern here on the part of, of, of the federal government. The IRS lost a net of 15% of its employees between 2010 and 2020. They lost 30,000 full-time positions in this, in this period. And these were in areas of enforcement and criminal investigation. It now he has about 78,000 employees. The, the agency projects that 31% of the remaining workers will retire within the next five years. So what you see at the IRS is, 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 is aged employees, employees not too far from retirement. The good news, I guess, if you're a taxpayer, is that 
the IRS audits 0.45% of personal income tax returns. The year before, in 2018, it audited 0.59% of individual income tax returns. If you compare it to 2010, that statistic was 1.1%. So basically, the IRS is auditing 50% of uh, a current current individual returns than how they did 10 years ago. But the bad news, if you're a higher income person, is that the IRS audits 9.26% of, of uh, taxpayers that report more than $10 million. This is the lowest percentage of audits in the last 40 years. The, the, on the corporate side, the, the, the IRS audits about 0.97% of corporate returns. And in the, the, in the IRS operational audits, they have two types. They have correspondent audits and field audits. Correspondent audits are where the taxpayer receives a letter asking for verification of income and also uh, deductions that that and 26.2% are field audits. Field audits are what we seem to all remember, where the IRS comes into your business or your representative's office and reviews accounting records, financial records. Together, in the last year they generated 17300000000 in those audits. But there's a third type of audit, and that's the automated reporter program. They had generated $6,700,000, and that has to do with the IRS's matching program. What the IRS has done well over the last 20 years is matching 1099Bs, which are from brokerage firms, 1099Is, which is interest income, or 1099Ds, which are dividend income, or Schedule K1s, which is a partner or shareholder's income from a flow-through entity. These audits are not people-intensive. That These audits are very efficient. And, and in a minute, we'll talk about additional reporting the IRS is proposing through, through uh, the refunding bill for the IRS. The IRS budget in 2019 was 11,800,000. 12 years ago, was 12,000, or uh, it was 11,800,000 currently. Ten years ago, it was 12400000000 currently, and so you can see that we basically spend less today on tax compliance than we did 10 years ago. In 2019, it took $0.33 cents to collect $100, and in 2011, it took $0.51 cents to collect $100. The IRS opened about half as many criminal investigations in 2019 than it did in 2010. Another tremendous problem the IRS is having is antiquated technology. 
Their technology was uh, developed in 1962. They use a programming language that is no longer taught. They have a data platform that's highly complex, it's hard to maintain, and one of the greatest risks is about half of the people that, that support this system are eligible for retirement. Now let's talk about the additional funding. As Larry shared with us that it's been proposed that, that uh, funding be increased by $80 billion. The, 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 the $30 billion of that funding boost would pay for technology upgrades. The lion's share would go for enforcement. The Congressional Budget Office has said that $20 billion of enforcement would yield $60 billion more in revenue. That's somewhat questionable. The IRS has based their statistics on a, a, a paper done by John Guyton and four other people, uh, and, and, and that paper indicates that a very large percentage of high-income people, 36%, account for the tax gap, the tax gap being the difference between taxes owed to the government and the actually pay. They base this on the, the, the results of random audits. And random audits, they're sometimes called informational audits. In the 80s, they were called tax compliant measurement program audits. But basically, they're audits that are done randomly for, for the sole purpose of uh, developing a model that would help, help uh, the IRS pick taxpayers to audit. But in this paper, the writers use what's called detection-controlled estimation, which increases the amount of underpayments by three times. And their justification for this is that if a taxpayer is audited, especially if it's a newer IRS auditor, chances are that they will not be able to capture all of the unrecorded income or expenses that should be non-deductible. There's another paper that was written by Gerald Austin and Dave Splinter that take exception to this detection-controlled estimation formula, or, or, or referred to as the, D, the DCE calculation. If the 80 billion passes, you will see 87,000 new employees by 2031. It'll roughly double the agency's workforce. Now let's talk about IRS audits for a minute. We have really three types. We have the compliance research audits I just mentioned, which, which, which the objective is to just collect data, though, though if you're the taxpayer and you go, go through one of these audits, I can assure you if there's an adjustment, the agent will, will uh, make it, whether it be that you overpaid taxes or you underpaid taxes. 
Then there's just the regular operational audits that we talked about. And then there's the automated underreporting program, CP2000, and this is the matching program of 1099s and K1s to the individual returns. Now, where's the IRS going? In the IRS's studies, they found that, that only 1% of wages were underreported. They came up with the number pensions, interest, and dividends, only 5% are underreported. Partnership income and capital gains, 17% underreported. Rent and sole proprietorship income, was 55% underreported. If you look at these statistics, you can focus on wages, pensions, interest, dividends, partnerships, and most capital gains are reported on third-party reports, 1099s or K-1s. The focus of the IRS is all, that has always been on fraud. That what they're trying, that what every agent when he starts an operational audit, he goes through an audit program that tries to determine the likelihood of fraud for this particular taxpayer. And one of the areas that has been a focus about the IRS is offshore bank accounts. If you have an offshore bank account, you're required to check a box to to uh, say that. If the bank account is over a certain level, you have to file what's called an FBAR return, which is just an information return. Starting in 2008, the IRS created a program called OBD, and that's Offshore Voluntary Disclosure. If you had an offshore bank account which you did not report on a USTX return, you could volunteer voluntarily make that disclosure and you would pay the back taxes, you would pay the penalties, and you would pay the interest, but there would be no criminal ramifications. Actually, uh, Phil, let me cut you off there. Um, you're a little over your six. Um, uh, let's go on to our, our next panelist, which is Tom Durham. Tom is a partner or retired partner at Mayor Brown, uh, also focused on IRS controversy. Go ahead, Tom. Hello, can you hear me there? Yes, I can. Go ahead. Tom, I don't hear you now, though. You don't now? Go ahead. I'm sorry, Tom, I lost you again. What about now? Go ahead. Yes. Okay. All right. Thank you, Larry. Um, I try to stay out of Facebook arguments, but one that I can't resist is when seemingly educated people uh, claim on Facebook or somewhere else that uh, rich don't pay taxes and that their uh, tax rates need to be increased, uh, particularly you know back to the levels of the 1960s when they were 90% or 70% through uh, much of the 60s. And I, I hear these arguments from some of my old college professors who 
ought to know better if they were read up. And unfortunately, these arguments are also heard in Congress, in the White House. Um, and I, I try to intervene in these sometimes because I, I try to increase the level of the discourse, but it doesn't work very often. Uh, the truth is that over the last 40 years, uh, the so-called rich have paid an ever-increasing share of tax. And the lowest 50% of income earners have been virtually released from any tax obligations. Uh, the lowest 50% of them income earners um, pay next to, to no income tax. And for most of my time here, I'm going to be talking about income taxes and not necessarily including the payroll taxes. When I was a young tax lawyer back in 1980, one of my first assignments was figuring out whether the then top rate of 70% applied to book royalties. Um, because that was the, tax, the top rate back then. And a lot of my work during the 1980s was with uh, various tax shelters that people use to lower the rates. Um, but those have, for the large part, been eliminated over the years. Uh, the tax rates have been as, as high as 90% uh, back in the early 1960s. But very few people paid at these tax rates, and really almost no one. Uh, in 1962, the IRS statistics indicate that only 447 returns out of 71 million paid tax at the 90% rate. And since 1980, uh, as rates have fallen, um, actually, the, the, the rich have paid an increasing share of income tax. And this has come from broadening of the base and elimination of many deductions that people used to be able to claim. Uh, since 1980, the interest deduction has been eliminated, except, for, of course, for mortgage interest and, and investment interest under some limited uh, extent. Uh, charitable tax deductions have been reduced. Um, personal deductions have been reduced and phased out. And there has been uh, an increasing broadening of the tax basis. And so much so that our tax code, most people don't realize this, is much more progressive than most countries. In fact, it's probably the most progressive tax code in the world. And there are some statistics which can be cited to prove this out. In 1980, the top 1% of income taxpayers paid approximately 19% of the total share of U.S. income tax. And by 2018, that doubled to over 40%, so that the top 1% of income earners now pay uh, 40% of all income tax collected. And on the other end of the scale, in 1980, the lower 50% of income earners paid 7% of the total share of all tax. But in 2018, and that's the latest year for which we have figures, uh, that had been reduced from 7% down to 2.9%. 
there was a very interesting graph in the Wall Street Journal. It was on May 12th, and it was in an article written by Phil Graham. And it published a graph uh, showing the statutory marginal income rate uh, beginning up at 90% in the early 60s and, and coming down over the years. And this graph compares the marginal tax rates to the shares of income um, of their individual incomes paid by the top 10%, top 1%, and the bottom 50. Uh, this graph includes payroll taxes, so it's a little bit different. And in particular, it shows the lowest 50% being a little bit higher uh, amounts of tax than what I've given to you. But what the graph shows is that the top 1% and 10% have paid an ever-increasing share of their income to taxes over the years. Uh, it hit a high point around 2000 uh, when Clinton tax increases had kicked in and the, and the Bush increases, uh, the Bush decreases had not come out yet. But um, the line is, shows an ever-increasing trend through the years, while the bottom 50% pay about the same rate that they've always paid, but much of that is payroll tax. Um, and through these years, ever since 1980, uh, the taxes as percent of a GDP have remained about the same. They roughly bounce around between 16 and 18% of GDP. And so the, there's been a long historical trend uh, of ever-increasing taxes on the so-called wealthy. And one of the big issues that we face right now is um, can Joe Biden change this? And he needs to change it uh, significantly uh, if he's going to uh, get more income for his program. And what, these, what the statistics that I've showed you is, uh, told you about is that the truth is that most of our untaxed income is that the middle class. Uh, in the Sc Scandinavian countries, the tax uh, percentage as a, as a percentage of GDP is north of 40%, and it's um, about half of that in the United States. Now, those Scandinavian tax rates are much lower than ours, but those rates extend deep into the middle class, so that uh, those in the top 50% are usually paying at close to this marginal rate. Now, to, to paraphrase Willie Sutton, uh, under our system, the middle class is, is where the untaxed money is. So it's going to be an interesting question of whether uh, Biden administration is going to be able to reach into that middle class uh, to increase rates on them because um, there's a pretty good argument that the rates are have reached their maximum possibilities on the top 1%, the top 10%, and the top 25%. So Larry asked us what we're optimistic about, and I continue to be pessimistic over the low state of our discourse on this area. 
because I think most people really don't understand the system. But I'm optimistic that um, there probably are going to be uh, minimal increases that can be supported on higher earnings. Tom, let me interrupt you there and ask you a, okay. a question. Sure. You know, we're doubling the IRS budget. Um, historically, yep. you spent many years uh, defending taxpayers uh, for various types of sh- tax shelters, uh, yep. recharacterization of incomes between capital gains and ordinary rates, um, yep. and other aggressive tactics that taxpayers have done. You mentioned earlier that a lot of those have been closed. Um, what do you think the IRS is going to go after among individual taxpayers to, to get some of this $700 billion in revenues? Um, well, that's, I, I have a hard time figuring that out. Um, Phil mentioned that their offshore income was a big issue. Um, around the time I re- retired five or six years ago, that was a very big issue. There were uh, enforcement amnesty programs against people with offshore income. And uh, through increased co- cooperation with some uh, foreign countries, um, I, I, I think that's probably no longer a very viable source, at least for most people who don't want to take those risks. I have a hard time figuring out where the tax gap is going to be uh, on the upper income people, which I think is sort of what the same thing with Phil was saying. Uh, with increased um, information re- reporting on 1099s and and so on and partnerships, et cetera, I don't think that there's a huge pool of untaxed or unreported out, uh, income out there. I mean, there, there's certainly some, but um, I don't think that there's going to be a huge amount in, out there. Uh, my doubt is uh, one of the things I think Phil also mentioned is uh, uh, Bitcoin, other some of the uh, you know some of the technology um, currency. Uh, possibly that's going to be an area of exploration, but um, I'm not convinced there's going to be a huge amount. Um, in the 1980s, 1990s, there was huge amounts of tax shelters and. And some of those were quite legit and worked. Uh, some of them didn't. And when those were audited, uh, the ones that didn't work produced additional income. I'm just not sure that there's a lot of low-hanging fruit for individuals these days. And it's going to be interesting to see how that develops over the next... Let me bring Phil into the conversation. Phil, you've done tens of thousands of tax returns over the years. Um, and now that there's all this excellent reporting to the IRS, um, do, do you see in, in the returns that you do whether there's room for the IRS to to find areas to to find income? No, no, I think there's very little, and I try to point out that on the third party reporting um, that that the IRS has what that what the financial uh, institutions say you made an interest or dividends. I would want to reconfirm what Tom has said. I think one of the focuses in the future will be virtual currencies. Yeah. And, and that in the Biden plan, <coughs> proposed comprehensive financial reporting so that every financial institution will report to the IRS 
that for each bank account, what your total deposits were for the year and what your total disbursements were for the year. And that would go into effect in 2023 if it passes Congress. So just driving what you just said there, um, did you just say that the IRS is going to get your bank accounts um, and kind of go through with a fine comb using some computer, uh, using machine learning or whatnot, and on that basis they're going to try to audit you? Is that, is that what you're saying? The proposal, Larry, is not for in, that the 12 monthly statements, but that the IRS would get a number for one bank account that would be your total deposits for the year and then your total disbursements for the year. And what they're looking at is sole proprietorships, mm-hmm. basically that you know, like that they want to make sure that all the income that goes into the bank account shows up on their Schedule C, because that's the tax form a sole proprietor would uh, that would uh, prepare. But let me try to let me try to rephrase what you just said, uh, Phil, for a second. So I think what you're saying is, look for. An individual who gets a W-2 and gets a 1099 from his broker and bank, there's nothing to do here. Uh, we're just copying the numbers right in the form, and there's really very little chance of, of raising or of fraud or raising additional tax revenues. But for those individuals who own and operate their own business and fill out their sole proprietary state, uh, statements and uh, use that to generate a tax return, that may be more open uh, to underreporting of income. Those were the sort of numbers you said where there were 17% of sole proprietors uh, were underreported. And so they want to dig into those sole proprietors. Yeah, Larry, 55% according to the IRS. I apologize. So um, these sole proprietors are, are maybe a, a scope for enforcement. Um, and what kind of businesses are those that they'll probably be going after? Are those the the restaurants, the doctor's offices, uh, the law offices? Uh, what do you suppose that is? Any business that would deal in cash. I'll give you an example. Marijuana businesses. Marijuana businesses can only deal in cash because under federal law, the banks can't, can't, can't service their business. Um, restaurants. Uh, you know, people, tradesmen that, you know, like that uh, do work that could be paid in cash. But again, that we're, that we're talking not about material amounts. I mean, yes. we're not talking of billions of dollars here. Yeah, I, I agree with the, what Phil just said. The, these, most of these Schedule C businesses are, are not going to be material amounts in reference to uh, the goals that Biden has stated. There's just not hundreds of billions of untaxed income from these types of businesses, which is where I'm, I'm just not sure where this is going to come from. Um, as someone who's been audited in the past, the audits uh, can be very annoying and very time-consuming. Um, yes. Your sense is that uh, with greater and greater numbers of audits, how should taxpayers prepare themselves uh, for this onslaught of audits, which you know, may or may not generate any revenue at all, but will definitely be a waste of time? Do we, should we be working on our own record keeping? Um, 
what thought process should we have in terms of interacting directly with the IRS, uh, either through our agents or directly, uh, in terms of trying to minimize the consumption of time? Phil, why don't you well, start always, and then go to Tom? It's always good to have your ducks in a row and to have your you know records prepared well, uh, both so you can do your return um, and uh, for the future. So it's it's pain, obviously, but um, it's a good idea, especially for people who think they may have some issues to have their records organized well to make sure they're accessible uh, in a logical form, uh, because that will speed things up when the audit comes. So I, I think it's increasing importance to um, have those in a row. And you know how time consuming this is too, which is another reason why I'm just not convinced that there's going to be that much money resulting from this. Uh, you know, the, the, the new plans mean that there's going to be thousands of new agents who are going to be less skilled uh, than the prior agents and are probably going to take more time to perform an audit. And sometimes there's not going to be that much money at the end of the tunnel. So, um, you know, I, I'm just not sure where all of this is leading. You know, there's a lot of, uh, when the auditor gets there, I, I, I imagine he's under a lot of pressure to find something. Um, and if, even if you find something that may be not true, um, sometimes it's better just to pay the guy off and just get him out of your hair. To what extent do we do you think this is going to just be, um, look, come in, look whatever you want, uh, you don't understand what you're doing, but fine. You want a few thousand dollars. Here you go. Just get out of my hair. I don't think I owe that money, but so what? Would that be the more common response to all this? I, I, I think that's possible. I think that's possible. There may be pressure to um, do audits more quickly and, and try to close them out with, with some collections. Um, I'm not sure about that, but I, I think it's certainly a possibility. Bill, what do you think? In any IRS audit, the agent starts out looking for fraud, as I mentioned, and then he gets into income and deductions. There's a point where he has to justify his time. Mm -hmm. If the agent does not see anything, doesn't see a pot at the end of the rainbow, he's going to try to cut it off, either with a no change or Larry Watt, what you're suggesting is that he questions a $2,000 expense and the agent or, and uh, your representative says, fine, disallow the $2,000 and let's move on. And so do you think that's the future we're talking about here? Just a lot of those, you know, minor, you know, quibbles? Is that, is that, and if so, how, how time consuming will that be for taxpayers? Well, it is going to be time-consuming because the agent he has an audit program that he's going to go through. Maybe 80% of the audit steps he have that have nothing to do with that particular taxpayer, uh, but you know, but that he'll still go through them, and so it'll still be time-consuming. I have to go back to something Tom said and something that preparing for this presentation. I've, uh, I've uh, concluded 
the numbers that people are throwing out in terms of unreported income for higher income people are ludicrous. I mean, that they're they're not there. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly agree with Phil on that. I was a partner in a law firm for many years where we we had high incomes and. Um, you know, to the best of my knowledge, uh, the partners in this firm were not doing anything fishy. Uh, we were all paying the high tax rates and all grumbling about it. Especially today with third-party reporting. Yes, yes. Why, why do you think that the Biden administration decided to double the IRS budget? Um, it was not something that was talked about mostly during the campaign. Why do they think that this is such an opportunity for, for generating revenues if both of you guys think that there's nothing there? What, uh, what got them excited? Well, as Phil has mentioned, there has been a reduction in the IRS budget uh, over the last 10, 20 years. So it, it probably needs to come back up. Uh, you know, I've been talking to IRS people over the last 20 years and they all felt the cuts in a lot of ways and complained about it. So I, I, I think that there is some underfunding. As Phil mentioned, their computer systems are a mess. Um, you know, I, I once had a trial where the issue was uh, whether certain computers were uh, state-of-the-art or valuable or not, and, and we found an expert witness who testified that this particular computer was the most common computer in the IRS system. And the, the IRS lawyer stipulated, he said, well, I'll stipulate that our computers are worthless. Um, their, their computer systems are very, very much behind the curve. Uh, they need to be fixed, uh, especially with all of this new uh, reporting requirements. I think it'll make it more efficient. Um, they are aging out. So I, I think there's a number of reasons why it's logical to think that there needs to be an increase in the budget. But um, I, I continue to believe, as, as Phil said, it's just not going to produce that much extra income. All right. Well, thank you very much uh, to both of you. Uh, we're now going to go on to our final panel on U.S.-Chinese relations as it relates to the South China Sea. And... Um, to predicting any escalation uh, in policy between the two countries. Thank you, Larry. Welcome. I would like to introduce our next speaker, Sebastian Strangio, who is an Australian-based journalist. He is the author of the book, Dragon Shadow, Southeast Asia in the Chinese Century. Please go ahead, Sebastian. In 2012, Xi Jinping acceded to the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party with a promise to lead a great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. In the years since, he has tightened control at home, reasserting the position of the Communist Party at the center of the country's political and economic life. At the same time, he has flexed China's muscle abroad, casting off Deng Xiaoping's sage advice that China should hide its capabilities and bide its time. China's increasing ambition and assertiveness have become a subject of fixation and concern in Washington, D.C. and other Western capitals. But few nations stand so exposed to China's growing power than the 11 nations of Southeast Asia. 
Five of the region's countries dwell directly to China's south. In recent years, these countries have become bound tightly to their northern neighbor by a new network of highways, railways, and oil and gas pipelines that have smashed through what was once an impenetrable barrier of mountains and forests. On the upper Mekong River, Chinese dams have choked off the flow of water to downstream nations in Southeast Asia, threatening one of the world's great waterways and giving Chinese dam engineers the power of life and death over tens of millions of people living downstream. Meanwhile, seven Southeast Asian nations are faced with the reality of China's rapidly growing naval and maritime power. This includes the large flotillas of naval and maritime militia vessels that are routinely dispatched to assert China's expansive claims to the South China Sea, which are opposed by Malaysia, Vietnam, Brunei, and the Philippines. It also includes the massive fortresses built on reclaimed islands that China has erected in parts of the disputed waterway. As these developments indicate, Southeast Asia is central for China's goal of reclaiming its former status of superpower that was lost during what many Chinese view as the country's century of humiliation at the hands of the Western empires and Imperial Japan. The region straddles the crucial maritime trading routes that grant Chinese goods access to the global market and also bear to China the imports of Middle Eastern crude oil that keep its economy raging. In many ways, Xi Jinping's road to national rejuvenation runs directly through the mountain passes and island straits of Southeast Asia. For the governments of peoples of Southeast Asia, of course, China is nothing new. For more than a millennium, the two regions have been bound closely together by commerce and tribute, as well as the large-scale migration of ethnic Chinese who have contributed greatly to the social, cultural, and commercial life of the region. However, China's current power is quantitatively different from the past. One result of its growth in wealth and power and the rapid development of infrastructure has been to collapse the distance between China and the nations of Southeast Asia whether in the rugged borderlands of mainland Southeast Asia or the burnished expanses of the South China Sea, China, its people, and the power of its state are now closer to Southeast Asia than at any point in recorded history. For Southeast Asian nations, this has been very much a mixed blessing. On the one hand, China's rise has been a subject of unsurprising concern. It has reawakened dormant memories about China's past actions in the region particularly its support for communist insurgencies across the region during the Cold War. It has also prompted concerns about debt, about the negative social and environmental impacts of large-scale Chinese infrastructure projects, and about the arrival of large numbers of Chinese workers and business people in the region, a perennially sensitive question for many Southeast Asians. Yet while it is common in the United States to hear China described as a threat to freedom on a global scale, Southeast Asian views are more complex and anguished. Over the past four decades, as China scaled down its support for foreign communist parties, it has become a leading economic partner of every nation in the region. Despite its authoritarian political system, it is also a convenient economic partner and political patron, able to offer significant amounts of financing for infrastructure and other development projects, untethered from the good governance and human rights conditions often attached by Western governments and institutions like the World Bank. Perhaps the greatest concern for Southeast Asia is the extent to which the rise of China has ushered in a new period of strategic turbulence as the United States and its allies take increasingly assertive actions to contain Beijing and curb its ambitions. As tensions between the U.S. and China increase, Southeast Asia once again finds itself at the center of a heated strategic, economic, and ideological competition. 
China's rise has posed each of the nations of Southeast Asia with a similar challenge, one that could later be faced by many other small nations as Chinese power continues to grow. How to benefit from this new power's economic growth without compromising their sovereignty or being drawn into making all-or-nothing choices between China and the United States? But how each nation has gone about each nation has gone about this differently, in line with patterns of historical interactions with China, as well as the vicissitudes of domestic politics. My book examines how the question of China's growth and the challenges it poses have been refracted through each nation's particular history and experience of relations with China. In general, the rise in tensions between the U.S. and China has added an additional complicating layer to Southeast Asia's ability to maintain a judicious strategic balance between the, 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 the two superpowers, with which the region enjoys close security and economic relations. Yes, you know, for centuries, Southeast Asia has been a crossroad of empires and superpowers and has long experience in managing such challenges. Indeed, arguably, few regions are better equipped in terms of their history and strategic culture to preserve their freedom of maneuver in this new age of superpower competition. Uh, we spoke with Rory Metcalf. Uh, is an Australian who mm. uh, is the dean of your Australian um, Naval War College. And he highlighted mm. that in order to contain Chinese power, uh, there would be four countries bound together in their pursuit. And it was India, Australia, the United States, and Japan. Why did you decide to mm. focus on the smaller, uh, more peripheral players? Lying, you know, at the pivot of the Indo-Pacific, you know, um, is the region of Southeast Asia. Um, Eleven nations of varying size and level of development, representing a you know vast diversity of cultures and languages and histories. Um, uh, and this region, given its, you know, given its geographic location, is bound to be central to any, you know, uh, the, the, is central to the strategic competition between China and the United States. Uh, as an arena um, in, in which China and, and, and rivals like the Quad countries will, will play things out. Now, Southeast Asia is a region of small nations. It's a very fragmented region. Um, and it's a region in which Chinese strategists have long seen that they could extend their power. You know, this is a region in which we're going to see in the years to come increasing competition between China and, and the sort of you know, Quad countries. I did a book club uh, with Victor Cha, who's a Georgetown professor, uh, and he tried to answer the question, why do we have – the United States has individual uh, alliances and relationships with each Southeast Asian country uh, as compared to in Europe where we have one you know, large NATO European uh, organization. And what Cha thought was that the Americans were much more concerned about actions – uh, by an individual Asian power that would result in the United States being forced into war. What I thought was interesting was in your chapter about the Philippines, when the Philippines was considering its relationship and military alliance with the United States, it was more worried about being brought into some other war in Asia caused by the United States coming to someone else's uh, help than it was necessarily being concerned about China going after the Philippines. How do the individual Southeast Asian countries think about uh, being dragged into some other conflict? There's a sort of there's a strong desire for a robust American presence in the Asia Pacific as, as a counterweight to China's growing power. But at the same time, 
the, you know, the nations of the region are, are quite uncomfortable with, you know, um, any prospect of an armed conflict between the two um, sides. You know, the framing of the, of the conflict as sort of this ideological struggle between freedom and authoritarianism, you know, it strikes a lot of people in the region, you know, as a concern, as a sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's positing, you know, a situation in which the countries might have to choose sides. Every nation in the region engages in huge amounts of trade with China. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's not an exaggeration to say that China is, you know, central to the economic health of the region and its future prosperity. You know, one of the reasons there is no, you know, the, the, the Southeast Asian version of NATO, the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, which was established in the 1950s, never really got off the ground is that, you know, the region did not want to be bound into sort of an alliance structure like that that would, you know, um, you know, oblige it to, um, you know, take part in an armed conflict. How should we think mm. about China's uh, lack of interest in human rights and the limitations it puts on U.S. actions in the region because of our fundamental desire to maintain democratic norms? Well, it's certainly, you know, the general view, you know, in Southeast Asia, at least at the government level, um, you know, is that Western pressures related to human rights and good governance are, are sort of are often hypocritical and condescending. Um, I think that references to human rights and sort of, you know, lecturing other countries about how they should conduct their affairs teases out the anti-colonial reflex that exists in many parts of Southeast Asia. You know, these nations, you know, fought in some cases, through, you know, um, through like, you know, armed insurgency to throw off the yoke of Western empires the middle of the 20th century, you know, that the idea that, that, you know, foreigners preaching free trade and, 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 and you know, the rights of man, um, you know, uh, they came in the 19th century, on, you know, using many of the same arguments as a justification for the colonization, the conquest of the region. Um, you know, China is very practical. It doesn't lecture nations about how, you know, their government systems and, you know, the actions undertaken by their governments. Um, and it's, <clears throat> you know, it, it sort of states that whatever a country does within its borders it, it, is its business. And it's hard to describe any nation in the region as a, you know, as, as a consolidated liberal democracy. I mean, you have, you know, um, you do have electoral democracies like Indonesia and the Philippines that are, you know, that have increasingly illiberal characteristics. Um, and then you have, you know, one-party states like Vietnam and Laos, you know, uh, an absolute monarchy in Brunei, and, and countries that are sort of semi-democratic, that hold elections, but that manipulate from, you know, using the legal system um, to ensure that, you know, favored elites remain in power. You know, countries like Thailand and Cambodia, um, and, you know, in a slightly different way, Singapore. In the book, you discuss sure. the fact that there's like, I forgot how many you said, it was like 35 million uh, ethnic Chinese across Southeast Asia. Yet, oftentimes, this results in friction between local populations. How do you think about mm. the, how China views its ethnic Chinese in, the, in, in these other countries? And how is that going to either support trade or create frictions, uh, foreign policy problems for both nations? Well, the presence of ethnic Chinese populations in Southeast Asia has been a sensitive question for more than a century, <clears throat> um, as has the 
particular relationship that the Chinese government has with these communities. The Chinese were brought into work, the tin mines and rubber plantations of Malaya, the sugar plantations of Java, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, in, in many places, Chinese became sort of defined as an other <coughs> who were, you know, fundamentally alien to the sort of, you know, the, 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 the Thai community or the, or the, the, the Malay community. Um, and because of the numbers of Chinese that came in during this period, and they altered the demographic, demographic balance in, in certain parts of Southeast Asia, they also were, you know, they, they had a reputation of being economically prosperous. And, you know, it's worth noting that at the, at the end of the, uh, in the late 1970s, when China, you know, you know, wound down its support for communist insurgencies across Southeast Asia, um, and, and, and opened relationships with, with Southeast Asian nations like Thailand, Malaysia, the Philippines, Indonesia, etc. You know, there were two questions that were really on the table. One was China's support for communism. Um, if China had stopped its support for communist insurgents, then, you know, it would help build relations between these, these, these countries. Um, the other question was China's relationship with the ethnic Chinese. So, you know, in 1980, China passed a new nationality law, which essentially drew a firm division between ethnic Chinese who were foreign citizens and Chinese nationals, you know, card, uh, passport carrying PRC citizens. And that was, you know, that, that laid the foundation for a, you know, a resumption of diplomatic relations and an increasingly lucrative economic relationship between China and the nations of Southeast Asia. What we've seen in, in recent years is once again, the Chinese government beginning to sort of speak of Chinese abroad as, you know, members of the Chinese nation in some way. They've begun to blur that distinction that they created in 1980 with the passage of the nationality law. President Xi Jinping has spoken of ethnic Chinese abroad and in Southeast Asia as members of a great Chinese family who have a role to play in building the China dream and pursuing the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. It's also something that could potentially boomerang on ethnic Chinese populations in the region, given you know, long histories of prejudice and in, in some cases violence against them. What is China's objectives, its foreign policy objectives in the region? Why are they being so aggressive in their military operations, building these islands, uh, sending fishing boats, and causing trouble and creating panic among these neighboring countries as to their growing power. And, and what is exactly do they want? I, I guess I'm a little lost. These are their big trading partners. Why do they want to push like, the Vietnamese into the American arms? What do they want? Why is what they're doing make sense? Um, what's going on? Mm. It's a good question. You know, if one was to sum it up, I think it would be you know, the idea that China wants to reclaim the position of centrality and power and primacy that it, that it you know, is perceived to have once enjoyed prior to the arrival of Western Empire, the, you know, the Western imperial powers in Southeast Asia in the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, before the so-called century of humiliation um, that the country experienced at the hands of these powers. So I think, um, you know, that sort of vague goal, you know, encompasses, you know, a, a large number of apparently contradictory uh, actions and goals. Um, I think China wants the small nations of the region, particularly, you know, the Southeast Asian nations, to sort of accept its primacy um, and to, you know, bow to its, you know, its, its, 
core strategic goals in exchange for prosperity within a, you know, a Chinese orbit. And I think, you know, when it comes to something like the South China Sea, you see, you know, China's core security concern about, you know, maintaining control of these sea lanes of communication that run through the South China Sea and preventing them from being cut off by, say, the U.S. Navy, you know, clashing or undermining um, its bilateral relationship with several of the Southeast Asian nations. But, you know, I think ultimately the Chinese, as good dialectical materialists, will probably see that, you know, money will eventually win the day and that China's economy and the economic ties that the region has with China, you know, will eventually assure, you know, ensure that these nations are, you know, um, you know, are acquiescent to China's demands. Um, you mentioned in the book, and I think rightly so, that no one has benefited more from um, American hegemony than the Chinese. They benefit from global sea lanes. They benefit from the global multilateral institutions, and they benefit from very low tariffs all over the world as it exports its goods. Why do they seem to be, of all the nations, um, the most aggressively challenging this uh, U.S. hegemony? Why don't they just say, you, you want to protect all the sea lanes, including mine? That's great. Why are they creating this um, challenge when, it's, when they're the chief beneficiary? You know, no Chinese strategist can completely believe that the United States um, would not, at some point in the future, threaten to blockade China or to use its, you know, its control over these sea lanes of communication to to assert its dominance over China. So this, you know, this, this constant, you know, lack of trust, which I think, you know, is arguably inherent to, you know, relations between states. You know, you mentioned the very important trade ties that go on between China and these nations. But if if I were to guess who are the three biggies that China deals with, it would be the United States, Japan, and Europe. And these actions, mm. if it engages in, it seems to undermine the most important relationships that it has. Um, also, they're, you're right, they'll be able to control the waterways directly on its border, but they won't be able to protect the sea lanes for trade with those three, their three as biggest counterparts. Uh, and they'll also be exposed to potentially oil and gas shutoffs as it goes through the Indian Ocean. I just don't understand why they think that if they act aggressively in this one small sector, that they've lost the larger strategic picture. Uh, yeah, I do think that there is an element of Chinese behavior that is counterproductive and, that, that, and, and self-defeating. Um, but, you know, it is, you know, over the past decade, Chinese actions have, as you suggest, begun to elicit a strong and increasingly coordinated Western pushback. You know, and it, and it could end up being that, you know, it, China ends up undermining its own stated strategic goals. But it's, you know, it's also worth noting that the, the large domestic dimension to a lot of what China does on the world stage. I mean, you know, the fostering of nationalism as a substitute for democratic legitimacy has been a feature of the Chinese communist regime, you know, for, you know, for several decades now. And it, it in turn creates nationalist commitments that the CCP cannot simply walk away from. Let's talk about the Belt and Road Initiative, the building of high-speed rail, mm. rail in general, highways, ports, um, massive Chinese uh, investments in the region. 
it's causing concern that the enormous cost and debt associated with it will result in loss of domestic sovereignty. Is it like temptation uh, for the, you know, for example, for the Laos government to get this, you know, a tremendous investment? Is there fear, like what was experienced in Sri Lanka when the the port was lost when the, the interest payments weren't made? How should we think about um, the benefits and costs associated with the Belt and Road Initiative? I think the important thing to, you know, recognize about the BRI is, you know, is that it really is not a cohesive and coherent strategy. The BRI includes large numbers of Chinese actors who have used this project to advance their own <clears throat> economic and political interests. It also includes, you know, it has also been taken advantage of by recipient governments um, who have used this, you know, this Chinese project as a way of, you know, attracting, you know, gaining access to Chinese funds for the use of patronage within their own political systems. And you know, no two BRI projects are, are exactly the same. I mean, there are cases, obviously, in which, you know, taking on a huge amount of debt to any nation is, is, is potentially problematic. And we've seen in Southeast Asia, Laos recently was forced to sign over control or, or, or controlling stake in its national energy grid to a Chinese firm because of, you know, COVID had um, impacted its ability to service its debts to China. You know, the, the Sri Lankan case is a good example. You know, China was very much responding to a request from the Rajapaksa brothers, um, who were then as now in charge of Sri Lanka, um, for a project that served their own, you know, political and patronage interests. Ultimately, the Belt and Road is that it, first of all, it leverages, um, you know, China's strengths. It creates connectivity, fosters economic intercourse, and and you know, establishes China as the, at the center of a geoeconomic zone. It also provides very handy outlets for China's excess labor and manufacturing capacity. Um, so Chinese steel and concrete, Chinese labor. You know, as I suggested, there's a lot of mixed feeling about the BRI in Southeast Asia, but it does answer um, legitimate development needs in many places. I like to end on a note of optimism. Uh, what are you optimistic about? Well, I think, um, you know, there are growing, um, you know, partnerships within the region, bilateral, minilateral partnerships within the region that will, you know, that are strengthening the ability of various Southeast Asian nations to stand on their own two feet and to stand up to China, um, you know, when it is necessary to do so. Um, I think the role of Japan in the region is very positive. The Japanese have offered Southeast Asia perhaps the closest thing to an alternative to what China is offering in the form of large-scale infrastructure um, that has a very good reputation in Southeast Asia for its high quality um, and its durability. Um, and I think that, you know, we've even seen it just in, in the last couple of months, you know, calls between the Japanese Prime Minister, um, Suga Yoshihide, and, you know, several Southeast Asian leaders, you know, sort of you know, uh, pled, you know, pledging to work um, to, you know, strengthen maritime security and to bolster these nations' ability to, to stand up to China in the South China Sea. And so I think that, you know, we're seeing sort of a, a dense web of bilateral relationships emerge, which will, you know, which, which could help the, the, the nations of the region um, stand up, you know, or, or manage 
the challenge posed by a rising China, to get that balance right between benefiting from China's rise but not succumbing to its power. Sebastian, thank you very much. Um, I'd like to welcome our final speaker today, Marco Popich. He is a partner and chief strategist at Clock Tower Group. Uh, he is also, also the author of Geopolitical Alpha, an investment framework for predicting the future. Go ahead, Marco. Um, so much has been said about the paradigm shifts that have caught many investors by surprise. You know, take, for example, the erosion of the Washington Consensus and of laissez-faire capitalism as a whole. Uh, or, or, for example, the purported decline in U.S. relative geopolitical power, the emergence of a messy, multipolar world. These shifts have brought politics and geopolitics into the purview of uh, the investment community. However, um, that's not why I think there's alpha to be harvested from geopolitics. These are all really ontological issues that are part and parcel of being an investor. I think that by far the greatest reason why the opportunity for geopolitical alpha is growing actually has to do with our own community, our, our epistemic investment community. Um, and I think that there are three major issues. First, the investment industry has become overly professionalized, specifically when it comes to quantification over the past four years. And as such, it is unprepared from a human capital perspective to deal with the messy, non-black and white world of politics. So that's first. Second, the quality of information at our disposal as investors is fraying. And this is in large part the consequence of the collapse of media quality. Just the quality of information you're getting from journalists is, is, is going down. We can talk about that. You can blame social media companies or whatever. I would focus on the closing of foreign correspondent desks around the world because of cost cutting. And third, we as a community, as an investment community, we don't understand who the experts are. Most investors still believe that talking to an ex-policymaker is equivalent to speaking with an expert, but that would be akin to speaking to an astronaut about astrophysics. We lack the culture of recognizing the true experts of geopolitics. It's not the practitioners who are now retired. They're often seeing the trees for the forest, and they're sometimes even mistaking op-eds for analysis. So let's begin there. You know, let's begin with that particular issue. With the current conventional wisdom, among most practitioners and ex-practitioners of geopolitics and the increasingly consensus view that the U.S. and China would decouple. So it always amazes me, you know, Larry, that investors are taking advice about the future of U.S.-China relationship from the very same experts who in 2011, 2012, 2013 were whistling in the dark while obsessing about Islamic terrorism. I checked the credentials of every Johnny-come-lately by asking them what they focused on in their geopolitical risk briefings 10 or even five years ago, and how, what percentage they dedicated to the rising tensions of U.S. and China. Now, it is the consensus today to basically linearly extrapolate the past decade into the future. And if you were to take that trajectory, the U.S. and China would be lucky to end in a completely decoupled world resembling uh, the Cold War. So, so the best case scenario is the Cold War. The worst case scenario is thermonuclear war. However, I think that the conventional wisdom is missing five factors that actually constrain U.S. and China from going to war. First, Cold War is an anomaly of history. Rarely does the planet neatly decouple into two armed camps. In fact, ahead of both World War I and World War II, enemies traded and invested in one another. Two, 
political science theory teaches us that a multipolar ordering of power is unlikely to produce economic decoupling. Why? Because allies cheat against one another. Three, recent empirical evidence supports um, the, the theory. So when China put sanctions on Australia against their wine, cotton, barley, timber, and coal exports, it was the American exporters that filled in the gap. Think about that for a second. Australia has been the tip of the spear of a more assertive U.S. attitude towards China, and yet it lost market share to its purported ally. Four, China is not the Soviet Union by any measure of imagination. American policymakers seem to not understand it, um, but they didn't really live under the yoke of the Soviet Union, so of course they do not understand the difference. These are nuanced. Uh, they're not the dramatic differences. And finally, ultimately, the U.S. will learn that the very best way to contain China is to actually continue to pry its economy open. Given China's woeful demographics, its current account will eventually fall into a deficit, necessitating the goodwill of foreign capital for a healthy balance of payments. So this is perhaps the ultimate difference with the Soviet Union. The USSR was a communist country to the very end. It never claimed to be offering a middle-class endpoint to its citizens. It claims to be offering a proletariat future. As such, China's ultimate constraint is that its people fully expect to become members of the global middle class. So what are the investment implications of this? Really quickly, the world will not violently bifurcate. The decoupling will occur in only some industries. In the meantime, we will rebuild supply chains over a period of the next decade. This rebuild will be gradual. It won't collapse the global economy. In fact, it will support the ongoing commodity bull market and will be a boon for CapEx companies. In particular, I like semiconductor CapEx plates. Marco, thank you very much. You um, make fun of experts. Um, we had Phil Tetlock on this program about a year ago uh, where he too questioned the capability and accuracy of experts in every dimension that we, we look at. Um, particularly in geopolitics. And you're absolutely right. I think investors have historically looked to former policymakers in the relevant country to help guide uh, decision-making or predictive decision-making, and they have done poorly. What would you advise investors how their process should work in evaluating expert testimony? Well, unfortunately, we have to trust ourselves. And that's what the book is about. The book is a manual the book is a manual for um, investors um, to start thinking about politics and geopolitics as part of a critical portion of being investor. My point is that politics and geopolitics should be in that toolbox. Okay, you can't go to a vending machine, press a button and get some former official who's now retired, doesn't have access to their security clearance anymore, um, basically regurgitate Financial Times op-eds to you across your boardroom table. I mean, that's what's happening in the industry for the most part. And um, I think that what we need to rely on is our own, uh, uh, you know, our own ability to analyze. So when you're talking to someone from that field, it's like asking a race car driver, you know, how their car works. They're going to try to push it to the limit. You want to talk to the engineers. And so, the two approaches that I really promote in my book is first, talk to the academics that nobody ever talks to because they've actually thought about these things uh, in, a, in a much more holistic way. So that's the first. And the second, of course, which is what the book is about, 
is focus on the material constraints to the policymakers. Um, you shouldn't care what they think. You shouldn't care what, they, what their preferences are. You should care what they can actually do given a, a holistic set of constraints. It, as you think about this U.S.-China example, what are the constraints um, that will limit both U.S. and Chinese actions as a case study for the constraint method of analysis? So um, I would say the three most important constraints. First and foremost in China is that the, you know, the sort of unwritten agreements between the Communist Party of China and the people it rules is that it will deliver a middle-class lifestyle, the so-called China dream, to its, uh, to its population. That's the first constraint. The second constraint is the allies of the United States. The allies of the United States just don't see China as big of a threat. So the United States is not going to have the kind of easy time coalescing a um, coalition against China. And then the third constraint, I think, is, um, is the fact that China itself is going to face significant um, macroeconomic difficulties going forward because of its demographics. Um, the IMF and you know, the State Department have been encouraging China for decades to spend money, uh, consume Western and particularly American products, um, and to you know, not run this enormous deficit. It's actually succeeding. This is the irony. Uh, the U.S. policymakers have now, including the Biden administration, have now suddenly decided that that's not going to work anymore. Uh, but that's, first of all, the, the data doesn't reveal that. Current account surplus of China has gone from 12% of GDP to flirting with the deficit. So it has been happening. And I think that one thing that American policymakers have to sort of, they have to pause, breathe, you know, uh, and maybe count until 10, and realize that all their hysterics about mercantilist China, while true, the bigger macro trend is that China is eroding. The reason for that is that people are getting wealthier in China, and they're seeking to either buy foreign goods from China, or they're going on these basically trips abroad and buying a lot of stuff there. Eventually, Chinese demographics is the sort of Democles that will tip what is currently a precariously balanced current account into a deficit. I want to go back to something that Sebastian Strangio had mentioned in his talk. He, he mentioned a different kind of constraint, which is the relationship of domestic politics within China and its relationship with the Communist Party, the CCP. Um, he was focusing on uh, Chinese nationalism as an excuse for uh, being both militarily aggressive and oppositional with its neighbors. How, how do you think about domestic Chinese constraints in this calculation? I'm very uh, sympathetic to that view, and I thought Sebastian's talk was uh, really, really good, especially uh, when he talks about you know, the way the allies, or rather the neighbors of China, uh, have this love and hate relationship. Uh, in terms of nationalism versus this middle-class aspiration, I think that's, that's something that uh, we need to think about really carefully. Because, you know, if you're a China hawk, you're going to talk about nationalism. If you're, if you're a China dog, you're going to say that, well, but they, they want middle-class lifestyle. And I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. That there's an interplay of those two factors. 
Do I understand your first point is that we should separate military and foreign policy from tradable goods and foreign trade, that they really don't have anything to do with each other, and that, that if tensions increase between U.S. and China, um, we shouldn't expect material changes in the amount of foreign trade between China and the West. So prima facie, absolutely. There's absolutely no evidence in human history that the two go hand in hand. The only reason that the investment community is obsessed about this is because the only geopolitical event that they're anchoring to is the Cold War. And Cold War was a unique, unique situation. I mean, honestly, throughout human history, we haven't had that neat decoupling between two camps. And so if you, you know, spend some time reading history and looking at the economic relationship of countries that were enemies against one another prior to conflict, you will see that neat decoupling of trade and investment flows almost never happens. You know, I mean, there's some, there's some erosion of enthusiasm for plowing into long-term FDI, your, your enemy, but trade and investment continues. All right, I want to give you a hypothetical and then apply the tools you've given us, uh, as you described it, from, from the toolbox to analyze the geopolitical problem with the concept of constraints. Um, here's the hypothetical. We had uh, Admiral James DeVritis on the program a couple of weeks ago, and he discussed a piece of fiction he wrote called 2034, which was about uh, an, a war, a conflict between the U.S. and China. And in his example, uh, the Chinese decided that they wanted to uh, take Taiwan. And their first move was to uh, take out an aircraft carrier, an American aircraft carrier in the South China Sea. Let's just imagine that there's heat going on in the South China Sea and, and Taiwan is up for grabs and China is, is being bellicose. And financial markets are starting to be chaotic. How should we evaluate as investors whether or not we should um, suppose that Taiwan will be taken and then, or not and then how to, how to place our bets? How to evaluate the, the, the likelihood of China succeeding um, and you know, buying the dips, if you will, on the Taiwanese semiconductor companies. You know, the biggest constraints to China is that it simply doesn't have enough power projection to fight a war with the United States um, over Middle East oil supplies and, I think, and, and other wider global trade routes. And so that's why I think um, you know, the scenario you've painted is focused very much in China's neighborhood, where I do agree they have their own home court advantage but they're constrained by the wider realities, which is that the U.S. is a global power, they're a regional power. And so that's why I do think you will eventually have a buy and dips opportunity um, in a crisis like that. It's funny when you described the Australian wine issue before where Australia reduced its export to China and the U.S. filled the gap. The way you kind of described the problem was like Australia was doing us a favor and how could we have cheated and backstabbed them? What I think is interesting in the example of, of Southeast Asia, it's the other countries in Southeast Asia trying to co-opt American military and foreign policy to benefit them, not the other way around. Every country wants to cheat, not only in the economic sphere, but also in the military sphere. So um, back in the 60s during the Vietnam War, 
you know, the Australians helped, but they, they weren't critical in protecting the domino theory at the time against communism in Southeast Asia when they would expect it to be the true beneficiaries of American policy. When you think about Taiwan, and should we think of it as the U.S. trying to get the other allies to help them against Taiwan, or should we think of the other countries in the region trying to get the United sure. States to help them to preserve Taiwan? Um, well, I don't think anyone really has Taiwanese interests at heart to be to to start with, and not and I'm not making a normative point. <clears throat> uh, I'm not making a normative point. I'm making you know just a geopolitical realist point, which is that um, it's not clear to me that anyone really worries about Taiwan. What will it mean for me? And they will um, ask the United States, as you have you know uh, described, they will ask the United States for help for maintaining the status quo. But where I think the U.S. will struggle is in getting these countries of Southeast Asia that, you know, Sebastian talked about or that, um, or, or Japan and South Korea, the U.S. will struggle in getting them to do more, to change the status quo, to, to kind of push China into a box. That's not going to work. And it's not going to work because for most of these countries, the United States ceased to be a relevant economic power 20 years ago. They're all completely addicted to China. So if the United States policy is to maintain the status quo, that's fine. But if the United States policy is to somehow tip China into a crisis or force China um, you know, to, to weaken, to basically beat down China, that's not something that these economies and these countries are going to go along with. The United States, especially under the Trump administration, but also under the Biden administration, has been going around the world creating a coalition, but it's been using, I think, um, it's been using rhetoric that just doesn't resonate with the rest of the world. So China's not the Soviet Union. We need to acknowledge that. That's the messy multipolarity that we exist in today. It's just a reality. And, and throughout human history, that messy multipolarity has been the norm. Um, the Cold War was not the norm. And just for fun, um, how would I use your toolkit to analyze the next French presidential election, uh, particularly as it relates to something like Le Pen? Um, you know, it seems that when you get the talking heads in the room, um, they say there's just no chance of Le Pen. Um, she's got no support. You know, she got beaten very badly uh, in the runoff race last time with Macron. Um, how would we use our toolkit to evaluate uh, that sort of risk. And it's so funny because in 2017, it was the exact opposite, if you remember. Actually, this was one of, I, I described this in my book, but it was one of the most lucrative investment calls I've, I've ever made, which was to just go along the euro ahead of the French election. Why? Well, because Brexit happened, then Trump happened, and then all the talking heads are like, well, we have to linearly extrapolate. Next is Marine Le Pen. And she was trailing in the polls massively. And actually, if you looked at her appeal, her approval rating in, in France was basically uh, precisely the opposite of support for the euro. So she made a critical mistake in 2017. She was anti-euro. And uh, the media voter on the European continent is just not um, a Euroskeptic. You know, like the journalists in New York and London are Euroskeptic, but the actual voters are not. And so she got crushed. And the funny thing about this is that the data was clear she was going to get crushed. And I think that they are just not looking at the polls again. She's actually very close. It's neck and neck with Macron. 
And the reason it's neck and neck is that she has finally understood her ultimate constraint. She has learned from her previous errors that her ultimate constraint is Euroscepticism. And so she has modified it. She's become pro-EU, begrudgingly accepted Euroscepticism, uh, sorry, um, uh, accepting the Euro area. The way that Charles de Gaulle begrudgingly accepted European integration. And that's why I think she has a chance to win. Polling. You know, we've done a number of programs on what happens next, analyzing the deficiencies in polling. Um, we focus mostly on Trump-Biden and, and Trump-Hillary. Um, I'm wondering how we should consider the use of polling um, in examples of French elections or English elections, uh, Brexit. Is there something broken in global polls? Polling is extremely useful. Let me put it that way. If you think the opposite, you're being irresponsible as an investor. And what I mean by that is you should think of polling the way you should think of a casino setting a line on a football game. You know, so the Patriots are favored by 10 over the Bills. Okay, that's, that's the line that's set by the casino. You can bet on it or you can bet against it. You can go over, you can go under. And that's the way to think about polling. It's really the combination of polling which informs the sentiment and where the market is. Um, and then, and then that's it. You can't use it to actually predict the outcomes. And what I mean by this is like, for example, Marine Le Pen versus Macron in 2017. Let's use that as an example. Polling was clear that Macron had a huge lead over uh, Le Pen. I think it was 20%. Um, and yet the betting markets, especially like the price of the Euro, were pricing in a much tighter election. And that was a mistake. It seems like the investment community oftentimes has a different consensus or a different view than um, the rest of the population. And I'll give you two examples. Um, in the investment community, was uh, individually very pro Biden, and they actually didn't know many people that were pro Trump. And the same would go with the Brexit example. Uh, if you went to the London investment community and said. Uh, who's going to win, Brexit or not, they would have gotten that wrong because everyone they knew was opposed to Brexit and saw no reason to go for it. So you're so right about that. And uh, I would say that it, it goes two ways, though. You know, um, So a lot of people try to correct for the bias of their friends in the financial community, but they overcorrect in really stupid ways. Like how many times has somebody told you that they spoke to a cab driver in Milan or Athens during the euro area crisis? Again, talking to people is a mistake. Driving into the heartland of America to check signs is not uh, a statistically significant form of analysis. And um, the best way to figure things out is to understand where the median voter is. That's it. I mean, if you look at the Biden-Trump election, like, look, the, the Biden-Trump election swung to Biden because he won the fifty dollars to $100,000 income um, of a group of people. He's, he, relative to Hillary Clinton, he had a 10% gain with that, um, with that segment of the population. And, you know, I mean, I called it for Biden in 2019. I doubled down on the call after the pandemic. And my reasoning was very simple. Trump did not actually do enough for the median voter, specifically the 50 to 100,000 group. And when Mitch McConnell prevented that stimulus effort, ahead of the election, 
that to me was the death knell. So if you're a Republican, if you're conservative, and you're mad that Trump lost, go back to that, you know, September, October, November period, and look at Mitch McConnell's behavior. I mean, in my view, he lost that election to Trump. Why? I don't know. Um, the easiest explanation is that McConnell misjudged the median voter in the United States because the loss of support in that income segment was massive for Donald Trump ahead of the election. And that's something that Biden won. And um, I think that Trump didn't, I, I think he didn't work enough in those last moments to push McConnell to pass the, the yet another stimulus effort. So what I would say to you is it's a combination of kind of figuring out where the median voter is, what mood is the median voter in, um, and also figuring out what the polls are saying. Definitely not looking at yard signs or talking to friends in the financial industry or the opposite of that, which is talking to cab drivers. Marco, thank you very much. That ends today's session. I want to make a plug for next week's program. Next Sunday on June 13th, our first speaker will be Heather McDonald, who is an advocate for the police, which is a viewpoint that we don't hear from very often these days. Heather has written the book, The War on Cops, How the New Attack on Law and Order Makes Everyone Less Safe. Our second speaker is Lisa Picard, who runs office real estate at Blackstone. I want to learn from her more about the future of the office and where the opportunity is to invest in office real estate. Our third speaker is Chris Varelis, who used to work with me at Solomon Brothers, who will discuss the lessons he has learned from his career in financial markets. He has a new book entitled How Money Became Dangerous. Our fourth speaker is Algene Harmitz, who is a film historian who wrote the book The Making of Casablanca, Bogart, Berman, and, uh, Bergman, and World War II. Algene's book is the definitive history of the movie, so please watch the film Casablanca over the next week so you'll be prepared for next week's show so you can really enjoy the conversation. Casablanca is an all-time classic that just gets better with each viewing. Our fifth speaker will be Tal Ben-Shahar, who will speak about his new book, Happier, No Matter What, Cultivating Hope, Resilience, and Purpose in Hard Times. And this time of COVID, we all desperately need hope and resilience for the challenges that we face. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes or wish to read a transcript, you can find them on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbeam, and Spotify. Also, as I mentioned in my introduction, please check out our new social media outlet on Twitter at What Happens in Six, at the number six. We want to engage our audience and hear your views and ask questions for the show. I want to create a community that learns together. I would also like to thank today's speakers for their insights. I would also like to thank our listeners for their time and for engaging with these complex issues. Please stay tuned for next Sunday to find out what happens next. Thank you, and you can disconnect. <laughs>